Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, good afternoon, uh, everybody. Um, welcome to uh, this lunchtime event. My name is Nick Pierce. I'm director of the Institute for Policy Research here at the University of Bath. And um, delighted today that we are joined by Peter Foster, public policy editor uh, of the Financial Times, um, who's going to talk to us about his new book, his first book, in fact, What Went Wrong with Brexit uh, and What We Can Do About It. Um, this lecture is the first in a, a series that we're doing uh, on challenges for Britain. So we're looking at the sort of major challenges the country faces in the run up to uh, a general election, which we anticipate is sometime next year, January 2025, at, at the very latest, um, giving us opportunity to think about, you know, the huge challenges the country faces. And in particular, in this uh, lecture today and discussion, um, Peter will be talking to us about what happened with Brexit, uh, the Brexit deal, which many people will remember Peter's reporting on during uh, the whole process, that whole period, um, as we went through the Brexit negotiations, as we reached the trade agreement and then the kind of aftermath of that. Um, so Peter will be addressing those questions for us today and importantly, thinking about where we might go next as a country. How do we address where we are in our relationship with the European Union across different dimensions, particularly the economic and business and trade dimensions. Um, Peter is a public policy editor of the Financial Times, as I mentioned, and has a brief to kind of break out of Westminster and, and Whitehall uh, issues to cover all aspects of UK policy, although on days like this, uh, obviously gets dragged back very much to what's happening uh, in SW1. Uh, he joined the FT in 2020 from the Telegraph Media Group and has had uh, more than two decades of experience covering global affairs from uh, New Delhi and Beijing, where he's based, as well as Washington, D.C., where he served as a Telegraph's U.S. editor from 2012. So he has a, a really great global perspective on these questions, too. And people will know if they're subscribers like me to the FT, uh, that there is a, a weekly Britain after Brexit newsletter that Peter uh, produces as well. So that's probably enough by way of introduction. Uh, I'm going to hand over to Peter. When Peter's finished talking, um, there'll be opportunity for Q&A. So put your questions into the uh, chat. Um, just note that your cameras and microphones do remain switched off as an audience. If you've got the question, please post it at any time and then I'll collate those when we come to the end. The session is being recorded and will be made available online as a podcast and a video which you can find via the IPR website. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Peter. Nick, thanks very much. And, uh, you know, as Nick said, um, you know, this is a, a, an interactive experience, I hope. Uh, uh, so so do fire your questions uh, uh, into the into the app. You know, I'm not an academic. I'm not an economist. Uh, I'm not a politician. I'm a reporter, fundamentally, uh, somebody who spent um, most of the last seven years one way or another reporting about Brexit and reporting about the impact of Brexit, what, it, what it's done to our politics and, and also what it's done to our trade ties as we left the European single market, the market that still takes about 50% of our trade. Um, I want to look forward, but before I do that, I think one of the difficulties uh, about the Brexit discussion is that in order to look forward in a sort of honest and fact-based way, you have to get to a proper reckoning of um, what Brexit has actually done, both to the economy and to our politics, in order to have a real discussion about the way in which um, we can uh, build back better uh, to use a phrase. Um, I think the first 
point to make is, you know, I, I was reporting Brexit for a long time and people used to say to me, look, you know, you're the original Olympic Brexit boy. You write and write about it. Why haven't you written a book about it? And um, the answer was always because actually nobody wanted to publish one. Uh, you know, the Brexit discussion was in many ways inert. We had a situation where uh, the Conservative Party, having had enormous ructions, delivered a particularly uh, hard form of Brexit. But it was an odd situation because the Labour Party didn't really want to point out what that very hard Brexit uh, had done because uh, in the process of the Tory party winning the 2019 election, the Labour Party lost a lot of voters, which, uh, as Boris, who, as Boris Johnson said, had lent their votes to Labour. The publisher of the book that I've just written, What Went Wrong With Brexit and What To Do About It, which is the important bit, uh, came to me uh, in, in December last year because I think they felt uh, that there was a an inflection point. There was a new opportunity coming up uh, uh, to um, maybe have another discussion about Brexit. And that's partly because uh, opinion polls are moving. So you see a plurality of people who voted for uh, uh, the Tories in 2019, voted Brexit for the get Brexit done election, now saying that they believe uh, Brexit has made the cost of living crisis worse, has made the economy weaker, has made trade weaker. Um, and, you know, secondly, the wider UK opinion polls show that uh, unless something quite dramatic happens, there's a very strong chance we will have a Labour government under Sir Keir Starmer, who has already said he intends to take us closer to Europe. He will be the first prime minister uh, uh, to make a really active case for taking us closer to Europe for you know, the thick end of 40 years. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. And we'll talk about the ways in which the Labour Party might move us closer to Europe within their red lines of not moving close to the single market, inside the single market or the customs union. But when you put those two things together and you look forward to the uh, implementation review of the trade and cooperation agreement that was implemented uh, at the beginning of 2021, which starts, the review starts in 2026, you put all that together and you see uh, that there is a, a discussion point, an inflection point to rethink potentially what Brexit means. So to go backwards, before we go forwards, what did Brexit uh, uh, do? Well, um, it had two impacts, I think. One is impact on trade, and one is impact on the UK's own internal politics. Um, the two are not entirely uninterlinked, but if we, if we go back to... Uh, the origins of Brexit, which go which predate the referendum. Fundamentally, the Leave campaign was offering a kind of bigger, brighter, better future where buccaneering Britain would, to quote Douglas Carswell, shake off the shackles, no longer be chained, shackled to the corpse of the European Union and would be nimbler and uh, uh, better able to do trade deals with the rest of the world and better able to uh, uh, um, break out of those uh, uh, oppressive European Union regulations, whether they're on chemicals or on supply chains, uh, and and become, you know, then this was never really clearly defined how, but somehow a kind of bigger, better, brighter Britain. So, uh, you know, what, what actually, what happened after Brexit? Well, I think two things happened. One is that it turned out that the... Um, uh, uh, idea that the UK could go off, you know, go it alone Britain, as you might want to call it, could go off and be nimbler and better off outside the European Union, turned out to be really hard to deliver. 
it became hard to deliver both from a kind of regulatory capacity, just standing up equivalents of the European Medicines Agency, the European Chemicals Agency. The, these regulators were expensive to stand up, difficult to stand up. And the second thing that became apparent was that when business was offered this new uh, deregulatory uh, uh, world, it didn't want it. So as Boris Johnson famously said, F business. Why did he say F business? Well, he was really expressing frustration that business wouldn't get behind this idea of the UK, um, you know, breaking free of Brussels and 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 uh, uh, remaking itself, re, re, you know, a new virile type of uh, uh, economy. So, I guess the, the the question this goes back to understanding before we have a discussion about what to do about Brexit, about what what it did. The question is why did business not embrace the Brexit offer, which goes you know, right back to kind of bendy bananas and the sense that the European Union was holding the UK economy back, even though if you look at the studies, Nicholas Crafts at Warwick, it's really clear that joining the EU single market um, made the UK economy more productive. It exposed our often sclerotic industries from the 1970s to competitive peers on our doorstep. It made, our, it made us, it did two things. It made us more competitive we had to be more competitive to compete with german and french france manufacturers and after maastricht in 1992 the integration of european supply chains meant that our manufacturing sector particularly and our services sector became ever in, ever more entwined with european value chains european supply chains as the single market removed those barriers to trade so what did the brexit deal do it re-erected those barriers. You can think of it, if you like, like a reverse trade deal. And so for companies that were used to trading in and dealing with the single market, 28 countries with a single subsidy regime, a single regulatory umbrella, not always perfect, but but fundamentally the, the, the same umbrella, they found themselves in, in a dual regulatory environment, essentially. So one regulatory environment for the 55 million people of the United Kingdom and one regulatory environment for the 450 million people of the European Union. And really crucially, and this was you know, a penny that really didn't drop uh, among, uh, among the politicians, even though the UK in many regards continued to follow exactly the same rules and regulations as the European Union after Brexit. So for example, we have the same organic food regulations that we imported from the EU after Brexit. So you'd think, well, you know, if we're following the same rules for my organic teas, for example, then surely that shouldn't make any difference. I should still be able to just send my organic teas because, you know, the European Union, they know pretty well that, you know, we've got the same rules, haven't we? But when you leave the single market, you lose what you could call the presumption of compliance. So when you go to the, um, when you go to the border with your tea, it's no good saying, well, you know, it's the same rules as we had before. You've got to show a piece of paper that proves that your organic teas are indeed organic. And then you find that not only do you need a piece of paper, but actually when you're outside the single market and you lose the presumption of compliance, you actually have 27 different questions or different ways of implementing that uh, organic uh, tea or the, sorry, the organics directive. And so you get a different rigmarole from Italian customs and you get from German customs and you get from Polish customs. And so businesses, particularly small businesses that were trading with Europe, 
found that incredibly complicated. And, and when you look at the studies during Dua Aston University, etc., um, what you see is the number of trading relationships between the UK and the EU falling away very rapidly uh, because the smaller companies just couldn't uh, uh, um, find the margins and the time and the paperwork to do that trade. So, you know, a company that makes beard balms and oils that used to do lots of business with the EU, just online, people in Spain and Italy, they love a beard in Spain and Italy, importing their beard balm oils from a website in Doncaster. Well, now they need a certificate to show that they could uh, license to import cosmetics. Well, even if you're a small salon in Italy, that's impractical. So what it did was, in a really uh, a crude and simple way, just make it more complicated and more expensive to buy something from Peter in Brighton, where I'm speaking to you now, than Pedro in Barcelona. And when you multiply that up and across over time, what you find is that the UK, whose manufacturers particularly are part of intermediate, so we don't make whole things, we make bits of things that go into things, and that crisscrossed whizzing across uh, uh, whizzing across uh, supply chains in Europe, the UK finds itself at a marginal, frictional disadvantage from the single market. So companies in single side the single market have to ask themselves, mm, do I really want to trade with the UK? If I do, am I prepared to put up with the extra cost, the extra paperwork, the potential delays at the border? And so, you know, that basic fact led business to often say, actually, we don't want to diverge. We don't want to be nimbler. But at a really fundamental level, that challenged a kind of very deep-seated Tory understanding of Brexiteer understanding of how trade worked and how that which was fallacious, essentially. So the retained EU law bill that was a caused a load of fuss, which was the UK saying we're going to rip up all EU era law that we don't decide to keep by the end of the year, caused massive ructions in business because. That EU era law was the foundation of the way that they did trade. So that's the first point. The second point is that this regulatory barrier, these regulatory barriers, because it's not about tariffs, trade, the barriers to trade are these non-tariff barriers. They're about regulation. These regulatory barriers get harder and get higher over time. So a lot of shocks that you might, uh, uh, economic shocks, so the oil shock of the 1970s, the, the uh, financial crisis, the war in Iraq, the 9-11 catastrophe, those were big shocks that were kind of one-off and that business then adjusted to. Brexit isn't like that. The very good Bank of England paper written by Bank of England economists looking at how Brexit creates permanent structural uncertainty, because even if we remain still, those uh, um, uh, EU regulations are coming constantly down the pipe. And if you're an investor in the UK, you're constantly asking yourself, well, how is the UK going to adapt to this or that regulation? So give you a case in point. The EU is in the business, in, currently in the business of implementing a new directive on deforestation. That's essentially a directive that requires companies to show that the palm oil and the soya that goes into their food is sustainably sourced. They didn't kill a load of orangutans to make the make the uh, uh, the palm oil. Now the UK has agreed to mirror, not agreed, but has decided to mirror the same standards and directive. But the food industry is still waiting for the government to introduce the secondary legislation that will require those people supplying palm oil and uh, uh, soya beans to the UK 
to follow the directive. So why does that matter? Well, twofold. One is if we don't have the legislation in place, then we'll get all that soya and uh, uh, palm oil that isn't sustainably uh, sourced dumped on our market because they can no longer sell it to the EU. So we'll dump it on the UK. Why is that a bad thing? Well, it's bad for the orangutans in the forests, obviously, but it's also bad if you're a UK company that's involved in the in the manufacture of food, because those inputs into your manufacturers are no longer compliant with the EU. So you can no longer sell that food or export that food to the uh, uh, European Union. And we're really good at food. High end uh, food manufacturing is one of our biggest uh, export and biggest uh, manufacturing industries in the UK. And even, of course, if you do have going back to the 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 assumption of compliance, even if you do have uh, uh, a piece of paper which shows that your uh, soya or your palm oil was sustainably uh, sourced, you still have to show up at the border with the EU with a piece of paper to show that that's the case. So that all that stuff is kind of quite technical, but it is about the nuts and bolts of um, moving things and making things. And, and it's been way too absent from the conversation about Brexit. And so, you know, that one of the one of the things I try and do in the book is explain why that matters and why business has essentially rejected the Brexit offer and is looking to the Labour Party to uh, um, bring us back closer um, to the European Union. I think the second thing that Brexit did, and this is important um, because it, it 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 speaks to investors. So investors look at the UK and they go, okay, um, you know, how easy is it? I used to be, you know, I was a car maker, Japanese car maker or a food maker. I'll build my factory in the UK and I can use that as an entrepot into Europe. I like my um, English language. I like the rule of law. I like the regulatory stability. I like the, the ease of doing business and, and of labour relations in the UK. So what happened after Brexit when we took back control? Well, as well as um, making it much harder for our, our integrated businesses to trade with Europe, it also created a huge policy pressure um, in, in, in our politics. So, you know, when the prime minister is going F business, he's, he's expressing frustration that the world is essentially not aligning to their vision of what life outside the European Union single market should be. And that same pressure could be seen uh, uh, with the civil service, the dreaded blob, as it as it's called, and indeed with the judiciary. Do you remember the enemies of the people that were in the uh, um, in the conservative press when Boris Johnson um, uh, prorogued Parliament illegally, as uh, as it turned out, uh, according to a major, an, uh, an unanimous ruling of the Supreme Court, and so that policy making pressure has um, created instability in in the european in the in the united kingdom for investors and that's incredibly important if you're investing in the um uk you're making a 7 to 30 year investment decision and what you see now with the uk is kind of two things one a kind of permanent structural instability so how is the uk going to inter going to mirror is the uk going to mirror xyz um directive that's coming down the pipe from Brussels. So another big one that's coming down is carbon border taxes. The EU is introducing something called a carbon border adjustment mechanism, where you need to, uh, in order to level the playing field, so you're not in, in, importing subsidised 
uh, a steel or, 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 or aluminium or fertilizer from, say, China, where the carbon uh, is heavily sub or potentially heavily subsidized, you're paying a carbon border tax to make it competitive for EU industries to um, uh, 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 develop low carbon technologies. Now, that carbon border tax is now going to be uh, required of the UK. And the UK has a different carbon scheme from uh, a carbon pricing scheme from the from the EU. Another border friction going forward. So if you're an investor in the UK and you're looking particularly to manufacture, you want to know how is the UK going to um, uh, internalize or not internalize um, the European Union's carbon border adjustment mechanism. And that mechanism, by the way, will apply, of course, to the US or Canada or Australia. But given the, the intensity and the scale of UK trade, it's much more important to us to know or to investors in the UK to know how the UK is going to deal with it. And so what we've seen of the last six or seven years is both internal ructions in the ruling Conservative Party as they try and iron out their differences over Brexit, but also permanent structural questions about the way in which the UK bureaucratic machine and the UK regulators are going to respond to and manage that regulation. And that matters for investment. And, you know, the UK has suffered um, from, uh, you know, decades of underinvestment and what investors want to see is a cogent plan about how the UK is going to manage this permanent question about the way in which we, we, we integrate regulation. And so the retained EU law bill, where the UK said it wanted to review uh, and, and either revoke or, uh, or, or retain um, all EU era legislation was exactly the kind of piece of legislation which they've now walked back on substantially, but exactly the kind of piece of legislation that had investors going, can we really trust the UK? Does the UK now have the political stability for us to have a regulatory environment, a dependable legal regulatory environment that um, allows us to see through political cycles? It's going to survive whether it's Labour or Tory uh, um, uh, politicians. And, you know, when you see the Europe, the UK government threatening to leave the European Convention on Human Rights, which is not an EU organisation, but it underpins the Good Friday Agreement and the trade and the security uh, and justice home affairs elements of the uh, trade and cooperation agreement. And you see the UK threatening to rip up its treaty over Northern Ireland. Uh, Rishi Sunak's put that to bed over the winter framework. When you look over the time period from 2019 to the present day, what you see is instability. It's what investors see. Uh, and it's one of the things I think that business is going to want to, um, you know, see the Labour Party start to address. So, you know, that's the background. That's the what went wrong with Brexit or rather, you know, why Brexit has caused structural and frictional problems for the UK. So the question now is what to do about it? Well, if we look at the polls, we can see that uh, uh, the there is a pretty strong chance that Sir Keir Starmer uh, and the Labour Party are going to be the next government. Never say never, but you know, uh, you know, there's a pretty decent chance that's going to happen. And you know, if we're going to get another Tory government, we're probably going to be roughly where we are now, which is in a sort of place of rough stasis with the European Union. So I think the interesting question is, if we're going to get a Labour government, what uh, can they do about it? What can they do to ameliorate or to change uh, the Brexit framework as we have it now? Well, first things first, Sir Keir Starmer has said that the EU will not 
rejoin the single market and will not um, rejoin um, the customs union. Now, that's quite an interesting position to take, because whilst the Labour Party derides Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, that Brexit deal, the kind of Canada style um, uh, basic trade agree agreement, is a function of a decision by David Frost and uh, Boris Johnson not to be in the EU single market or the customs union. If you go to the European Commission, you go to Michel Barnier, you get out his staircase and you plug into his machine, no single market, no customs union, and you wind the handle, what drops out the bottom is something that looks very like the trade and cooperation agreement that was uh, agreed between the UK and the EU. So what could Sakir Starmer do to try and um, make things better, as he says, move us closer to Europe? Well, I think the first thing he can do is um, reopen the question of having a, a, a security and a diplomatic partnership with the EU. The top of the the top body, the joint body that uh, runs the trade and cooperation agreement is called the Partnership Council. That's actually a leftover from a, from an earlier vision that Theresa May had of having a big diplomatic uh, uh, umbrella uh, uh, to talk about trade and cooperation and, and the neighbourhood and security arrangements that would sit as part of the EU-UK deal. That fell away under Boris Johnson. And I think Sakir Starmer will look to try and rebuild some of that apparatus because what you see every quarter in the European Union are the prime ministers and chancellors of Europe, all 27, 27 of them, in the room together every single quarter. I used to cover those summits uh, every quarter. The UK is no longer in that room. And what you see is that the um, diplomatic as well as the trading relationships with Europe and the official relationships between the officials in, the, in Whitehall and the officials in the Brussels bureaucracy, they have a half-life. The European Union is no longer... Um, fretting about Brexit. It has a stable Brexit deal, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, a stable deal with Northern Ireland, the Windsor Framework. And the UK has essentially, it's no longer in the room. It's lost those um, daily interactions that get the UK in the room in Brussels, that get the UK, you know, to be part of the machinery. And I think one thing that um, uh, Keir Stummel will do is look to build some apparatus that allows more contact, more structured contact between the e UK and the EU um, going forward in the future. There are areas where the UK can look to um, take a less zero sum, a less go it alone approach, emphasise that it, it wants to be part of the European Union neighbourhood rather than a thorn in the European Union side. So, for example, there's Operation Altea in the Balkans, all sorts of com complications in the Balkans. We have deep experience there after the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. The UK could uh, contribute to the EU mission there to help stabilise and advise um, those countries as uh, in the future. There's the whole question about Ukraine, the rearming and rebuilding if the war comes to an end of Ukraine. I think the UK, particularly in a world where we might end up with a Trump II administration, has really something to offer to the EU and to the European Union neighbourhood in terms of seeing the, that, that challenge as a pan-European challenge rather than looking to stamp a union jack. There's a European peace facility uh, that's that's there to funnel uh, munitions and, and resources into the uh, Ukraine, into Ukraine rather. And you know, th there are footholds there where the UK could show that it wants to be a regional player. Energy is another one. I mentioned the carbon border adjustment mechanism. The um, uh, uh, the uh, trade and cooperation agreement has a clause in there where it says that both sides can look 
at linking their carbon prices, pricing schemes. As it stands at the moment, the UK scheme is actually trading significantly below the EU scheme. But a lot of businesses would like to see us linking those schemes so that we avoid the frictions at the border caused by um, a, a carbon border adjustment. And if anything is a, um, a, a shared endeavour, it's surely it's tackling climate change. Similarly, the UK has geological assets in the North Sea, for example, for sequestering, for sinking carbon, um, which could be part of a wider package about energy, um, green energy and wind power. Um, we're already part of the North Sea, uh, uh, which is European Commission chaired the North Sea cooperation arrangement on, on wind power. And I think that space, that, that green space in terms of energy security and cooperation and net zero is another area where Outside his red lines on single market and customs union, Keir Starmer can look to build the relationship. People to people contacts also important. Erasmus, the two way scheme that used to be there for sharing, uh, allowing students to uh, go back and forth uh, with the EU. We are not in that at the moment. We started our own scheme, the Turing scheme, for, for example, which is a, an equivalent to Erasmus, but it's one way. I think European elites would love to see us rejoin Erasmus, another uh, kind of area where the UK can can offer something to the EU outside single market and customs union. Um, so youth mobility is another area. So uh, just interestingly, I just did a story quite recently um, about an arrangement between the Home Office and the French government to allow um, school trips to come uh, without using passports and without the foreign kids, so you know the uh, an Afghan or Chinese kid who's in a French school requiring visas from the Home Office, you can see worlds in which the mobility uh, uh, areas, particularly on the kind of softer stuff like youth mobility, school trips, could improve uh, the EU-UK relationship, make it less abrasive, build on what Rishi Sunak, to be fair, has already done in in signing the Windsor Framework, rejoining the Horizon Science Programme in order to um, uh, uh, create a sense that the UK wants to be part of the neighbourhood. But none of that, none of that really substantially changes the fact that it's going to be harder to buy stuff from uh, uh, Peter in Brighton than Pedro uh, in Barcelona, to use that very simple formulation. If you're going to be outside the single market and the customs union, even if you're going to do, say, a veterinary deal to align on standards, you still don't get over that really basic question, which is that once you start looking at the, the future sets of relationships, so there was a stock of relationships between the UK and the EU that business had invested in, that diplomats and officials had invested in. But the question is about the flow. When the next set of contracts, when the next factory, when the next deal on AI or, or uh, um, on, on, on global security is done, is the UK in a position to take advantage of those deals? Uh, you know, when you talk to businesses, they find themselves struggling to convince their European clients to do business with them, struggling to do that next deal with the UK. And it doesn't mean that all trade dries up. It doesn't mean that... Um, you know, the, the the world ends. It just means that marginally it gets harder and harder to do business. And similarly, what you find with high value manufacturing is as the UK gets squeezed out of supply chains, you, you don't see a massive unemployment crisis. What you see is those jobs being replaced by lower productivity, lower paying jobs. So, for example, the Honda plant 
um, left Swindon and it's been replaced by a big logistics plant, kind of Amazon warehouse in one place and the Panatoni big logistics division in another. It doesn't mean the people of Swindon don't have jobs. It just means they have less high paying, less well paying, less productive jobs. And I think, you know, that is going to be the, the big challenge going forward for Keir Starmer is he wants to be the fastest growing economy in the G7. But within those red lines, all the things that he could do, and there's a long list of them in the book, if you if you want to go through a big chapter called the nitty gritty. And, you know, all of those things aren't really going to um, change the basic equation, that structural equation that Brexit has created for the UK vis-a-vis -vis the market that takes all of its trade. Uh, or 50% of its trade, forgive me. So I think that is going to be the challenge. And, and, and after we get through the election, if we get through the election, if Keir Starmer wins, one of the challenges is going to be is, is actually how sustainable um, his pledge to remain outside the single market or a customs union remains. You know, the other challenge, of course, is can Sir Keir Starmer engage Europe beyond uh, its current position? As things stand... You have to remember the European Union runs a surplus with of goods with the UK. It's got a trade deal that is perfectly good from its point of view. We actually haven't even imposed our border yet on goods coming from the European Union into the UK. Um, our exporters face all the frictions with the EU border, but actually it's starting in April. But we have yet to impose uh, frictions coming in the in in the opposite direction. And so, you know, what is the EU motivation? for re-engaging with the UK, particularly if, for example, Sir Keir Starmer ends up with a small majority, even a minority government, the Conservative Party tacks further to the right, which I think is an assumption of many political pundits. And you're looking across the channel from a European perspective and you're wondering, well, look, if we do um, you know, significantly uh, alter our trading relationship with the UK, what's going to happen in five years' time? How stable is any deal with the UK going to be? And that's a wider question for investors. You know, how stable is UK politics fundamentally? You know, one of the things that Brexit has done is it's not like, you know, you elect a Donald Trump, for example, and then you unelect him. Um, maybe they're going to re-elect him. But the point is, once he's unelected, things can change. With Brexit, Sir Keir Starmer's election, if that's what happens, despite his different views, isn't going to immediately change the structural situation that Brexit creates. And so it is a very permanent uh, 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 challenge that Brexit uh, gives us um, going forward. And, and um, it is going to be fascinating to see the extent to which um, Labour is prepared to make the case for a closer relationship with Europe. That is normally what it said it wants to do. That is probably going to require an awful lot of rule taking. And historically in the UK, that's been politically very toxic. The Conservative press will say that we've become Brussels poodle. But of course, the more rule taking you do, it begs the question, well, why should we take rules we don't have any say over? And there's two responses to that. One is the, the response that we had in 2016, which is that, you know, where we did have a say over the rules, but we left anyway. But if we are going to start aligning in sectors, in chemicals, in cars, in, in standards and regulations, and there's already evidence that we're doing that already, how long before the question comes, well, we ought to have some kind of a seat at the table. We ought to look at ways in which we can um, become part of European Union institutions. And that, I think, is a potential route back to a much closer relationship than the one we have now. 
The alternative is that actually Keir Starmer gets into office, um, and I think this is a view that you often hear in the Foreign Office, and discovers that the European Union isn't particularly flexible. The European Union has other things to worry about, and you expend quite a lot of political capital, uh, uh, particularly at home where you're being battered from the right for your moving closer to Europe, for no obvious immediate gain, because many of the things that he says he wants to do will take time, a veterinary deal, for example, um, and they won't yield massive uh, uh, immediate economic advantages. So, you know, there is a provision in the Canada deal, for example, on mutual recognition of professional qualifications um, to make agreements to agree each other's qualifications. Canada spent nine rounds of negotiation and a year to do one deal on architects. That gives you an idea of, you know, in reality, how slow and iterative the negotiations are likely to be. And so you can see a world, and I am no crystal ball here, but you can see a world where Keir Starmer finds people advising him and saying, look, Prime Minister, you're copying an awful lot of flack here for not much gain. You know, the European Union don't seem to be massively interested in advancing uh, the ball uh, forward. And, you know, probably it's not worth the candle. I think that's a very dangerous place to be because if we have another five years of zero sum of atrification in commercial and diplomatic relationships, it will get harder and harder to um, to restore and repair those relationships. And so that is, I think, the big unknown question about what uh, what is coming down the tracks. There is a headline commitment from Labour to move us closer to Europe, something, as I said, no British prime minister has done. Uh, and a kind of, at the moment, fairly tepid uh, response from the EU, who are taking the view that, look, we've done a deal, we don't want to destabilise it. Um, you know, the Labour Party, Keir Starmer said he wants to be outside the customs union single market. Well, you know, that's pretty much um, what you've got now. What we need to do is make the deal you've got now work. But as I've tried to explain, that deal itself has hugely inherent um, limitations. And in a world where you're trying to desperately drive economic growth, attract foreign investment, particularly, um, you know, uh, uh, that is going to be a difficult place for the Labour Party to be. So I think that's roughly about half an hour. So I'll stop there and um, and hopefully let's do some questions. Great. Thank you very much, Peter. That was a, a really comprehensive, clear and um, well, challenging as well. There's a lot in there that's that's very um, challenging. And uh, there's some questions in the chat. I'll, I'll start with the third of those, which is from my colleague, Matt Dixon, which says, look, you know, you can see why Labour's not saying that it wants to go back into the single market in particular, because that brings with it um, obligations on free movement. And that opens up the question then of immigration. But what are the chances that Labour might think the economic benefits are so much greater of going back into the single market than of incremental uh, change of the kind you describe um, that Starmer might then make that decision. Now, you kind of towards the end of your talk there, Peter, sort of uh, address that. But I wonder if I might just uh, uh, put a bit of a twist onto Matt's question, which is to pick up a point that your colleague Martin Sanbu has made at the FT um, that uh, with the European Union now opening um, candidate accession status negotiations with Ukraine, with Moldova, um, with, uh, uh, if you like, uh, opening up particularly with Ukraine, um, the, the possibility of there being more flexibility 
in relationships to Europe beyond Barnier's table and beyond the sort of indivisibility of the four freedoms and so on, that the EU might, because of what's happening in the East, in the, in the Balkans, might decide uh, to be more flexible than Barnier was in negotiations with the UK. And that might provide an opening for Britain to come into a, a new relationship, um, that there might be ways of coming into the single market or the customs union in more flexible ways or incremental ways. What, what do you make of that argument? I think I think he's a very clever man, my my colleague uh, uh, Martin Sambu. Uh, I listen. I I I think the most important thing about that argument to, to be to stress about that argument is that we're talking about timeframes that aren't relevant and material to the immediate discussion about what's going to happen uh, in the next five years. I think it it is true. I don't believe. Personally, that it's likely that actually Ukraine accession will ever happen. Um, but you have to remember that, you know, we've been talking about concentric circles in Europe since the François Mitterrand's day. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's a European political community, the EPC, which Macron started. There are already footholds on the outer circle. And people around uh, Keir Starmer talk about, you know, we want to be as close to the really outer circle to, you know, obviously there's the, there's the Eurozone, and then there's the non-Eurozone members, and then there's the members. And we want to be as close as possible without being inside. I guess what I would say is it is entirely possible that managing the accession of the Ukraine and other uh, European, uh, uh, contiguous European countries will require the EU to think about ways in which it manages those memberships. But you can't be half pregnant. So you go back to the, you know, what would that actually deliver, right, in terms of the whole question about how you make trade frictionless and interactions frictionless, you know, between Pedro in Brighton and Peter and Peter in Brighton and Pedro in Barcelona. And so I think it's a nice idea, but I don't think it really resolves that fundamental question, certainly not for investors. If I'm making an investment, it doesn't help me to think, well, maybe the EPC will create a talking shop that the Brits could get a bit closer to. I want to know what are the mechanics of managing the nuts and bolts relationship. And I don't think that answers that question. I mean, in terms of your the first question to your colleague, I don't know is the answer. I think um, that it probably won't move that quickly. But there are things that, um, you know, you never, you never never say never in a way. I mean, who knows if we end up in a Trump two world, if, if, if the UK economy comes under huge pressure, if, um, Starmer wins an enormous majority and sees an opportunity to move the ball very far, very fast in the light of the economic drivers. I mean, I don't know, right? I, I find that hard to believe because I think single market membership, EEA type membership, raises a host of other problems about rule taking, particularly for the financial services sector um, that, may, that, may, that put the UK in a very uncomfortable place. I think um, one of the areas that is interesting, something that Anton Spisak at the Tony Blair Institute has raised, which is that if you end up in a Swiss style arrangement where you essentially end up doing a kind of reverse retained EU law bill, where you are axiomatically aligning in law with EU rules and regulations in certain sectors, you are then putting a floor, a different floor under the discussion about the level playing field. If you've made a legal, now of course laws can be undone, but I think that is one way to look at how the UK might move much closer to the EU is if you started to live in a world where 
the UK was um, aligning in law, creating structures in law for the UK and submitting to the European Court of Justice, to the to the EU, to OLAF and EU oversight institutions. Mm. The challenge with that is, you know, that that is requiring a lot of rule taking. That is requiring, you know, in the debate about sovereignty, a lot of you're giving away a lot of sovereignty, which is clearly, you know, outside the kind of very binary approach taken by some of the most hardline Brexiteers. Sovereignty is a fungible commodity. You know, we, we, we give some away when we sign Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. But it is a very, it would be a very uncomfortable position to be in, I think. And, and as I said, it would beg the question, well, if we're going to be rule-taking at that level, what's the next step? How do we find ourselves? And And so... Then you're asking the EU to create a genuinely hybrid arrangement where, you know, the UK goes back to some kind of position, which it had when it was a member, where it starts to have inputs into rules and regulations, starts to help formulate rules and regulation. And by the way, there are a lot of rules and regulations coming down the tracks. A lot of people who would argue the EU supply chains, due diligence, plastic packaging, deforestation directive, carbon directive, the EU is making itself deeply uncompetitive. And I suspect if we were members, we would be looking to moderate some of that regulation. As a non-member, we're just downstream of that regulation. Yeah. But I think, you know, so I think, you know, those are really challenging, really challenging questions for the UK. Thank you, Peter. The, um, there's a couple of questions which are just about the uh, social divisions for, caused by the vote. So you talked a lot about um, economic and business and trade questions, but obviously there's the sort of the lever-remain divide and the sort of depth of that. One of our questions here saying that was very pronounced in, in Bath. Now, the polls and the political scientists will say that the uh, EU cleavage has diminished in British politics, that, you know, coming out of... Um, COVID in particular, through to the post-COVID kind of crisis, cost of living crisis, that um, people's voting intentions are no longer structured by the leave-remain divide in a way that they were, which might op opens up in particular the prospect, obviously, of a changing government, but also potentially opens up the prospect of political parties being able to take things forward in new ways because uh, they're not so constrained by those um, political identities and preferences that were shaped by Brexit. That's one question. And the other is a, is a sort of retrospective one from my colleague Alice and others, uh, which is how did this happen? You know, how did all the things you describe, you know, they were debated in the campaign, but not very well or not certainly not very comprehensively. Uh, how was it that, you know, Britain voted to leave? And I suppose I would add just to that, you know, most political economy textbooks will tell you that governments and states in capitalist societies have very strong representation or uh, even structurally responsive to the interests of big business in particular. Why was it that big business being opposed to Brexit and being opposed to the hard Brexit deal that we got and even now being uh, opposed to regulatory divergence was not able to uh, prevent these things happening, and in particular, did not influence the Conservative Party, who historically have been aligned with the business interest. Okay, so two huge questions there. Let's start with the polling question. I got several observations about that. The first one is, um, I wouldn't overstate the levels of regret, as it were. I think because 
Brexit has become a kind of non-partisan issue in the sense that the Labour Party has avoided making it a partisan issue. You know, ordinarily you would expect the blue team's done this particular Brexit and the red team would be there pointing the finger going, look what that's done to the car industry, look what that's done to the... It hasn't happened. So I was talking to Rob Ford, the political politics professor uh, at uh, Manchester University, who's a brilliant, I think, analyst of this stuff. And he was making the point that one of the things that's not been tested is whether or not the levels of regret that you do see are really just reflections of people's dissatisfaction with the cost of living and the economy, because they've not been refracted through the, through a party political prison. So if it was a kind of red v blue issue, would people be as content, would those Brexiteers who now express some regret, would they be as content to express that regret? How sticky is that regret once it becomes a political identity issue? The other thing to remember is that there's some replacement of older, you know, older people dying off and younger people who tend to be, you know, more pro-European feeding in. But some of the regret, some of the opinion that is saying Brexit hasn't gone very well, is actually expressed by those people who would like a harder Brexit. Mm. Right. Some of that cohort are actually saying the trouble is not that, you know, this nonsense that Foster comes up with about alignment and rebuilding and repairs. That's the problem. The reason it hasn't worked is that we want to we want a tougher, we need to be more divergent, we need to be more Singapore on 10. So, you know, I wouldn't say there's a unified block of anti of, of Brexit regret opinion that axiomatically wants to be closer, which is what most Remainers would, would be. Um, I also think that when you ask people about their opinions on Brexit and the relationship with the European Union, they tend to be as cakeist as their politicians, mm. you know, you know, so they don't want free movement, but they do want ease of ease of movement for holidays. And they do want, you know, the right to go and work in the EU. They, they have a very cakeist view of, 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 of the relationship, which, frankly, as we've discovered, isn't deliverable. And so when you get back to the rejoin question, you see these polls saying 56 people, percent of people want to rejoin. Do they want to join the euro? Do they want to go back to free movement? Really? You know, you know, I, I, I'm sceptical that this country, uh, you know, which has been eurosceptic, fundamentally eurosceptic, you know, since, you know, certainly since the Maastricht Treaty, right? You know, our instincts are not uh, about, you know, joining a federal Europe, I don't think. You know, that you know, the history of this country is... And that's why I think it, it will be challenging. I don't think anyone should kid, kid themselves that it will be challenging for Labour to reverse that narrative. They are very deep-seated, those narratives. And I'm not sure that the experience of Brexit, which has been wrapped up in COVID and the war in Ukraine and the energy price shock and all sorts of mudding in the waters, is really clear-cut enough for people to suddenly go, you know what, gosh, we got we got the whole thing about Europe. We got that all back to front. We need to rejoin. I don't. I don't buy that. And I think. I think that's there's, there's, there's a you know more than a certain amount of wishful thinking. And I think the Labour Party um, are are aware of that. You know, Brexit at a very fundamental level was about taking back control. It was about UK identity, um, and it may have been frustrated by the realities of delivering it. But I'm not sure those drivers have really, really shifted. And 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 a, and a move to go against that, as I said. 
it would be a remarkable even Tony Blair Tony Blair was quite pro-European but I wouldn't say you know he went out of his way to publicly make the case and advocate um for Europe and Keir Starmer you know in a world where there's no there's no money there's no fiscal space there's not much there's not many easy ways for him to make life better for people a big play on Europe is I think domestically going to be tough mm. um so that's my view about uh, about about the polls I think Labour just take the view that there's two two schools of thought in Labour one is Labour should say exactly what it's going to do in order to kill the betrayal narrative right that you know Starmer wants to betray Brexit um and if it was more explicit about what its plans actually were vis-a-vis -vis Europe that would kill off the betrayal narrative I think the Labour leadership and the and the think thinkers around Labour are simply nervous that if they do turn it back into a partisan issue, you will discover that actually that regret polling is really quite soft. Mm. Um, so that so that's the that, that that's the, the the first part. Nick, what was the second question? Gone well, it was really just it, it was really just why the business interest. Ah, yes, good. Not question. being able to prevent, you know. So, I think um, you know. When you start to think about that question, you get quite quickly into a reflection, don't you, about populism in a way, um, which mm. is complicated, simple answers to complicated questions. Um, yes, the Tory party is the party of business, but actually, if you look at Tory voters now, they tend to live in towns, they tend to not have degrees. You know, there's been a, a significant shift in 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 Tory voters, and therefore Brexit played to the new Tory right in a way. And I think those arguments that corporations were making, those arguments that um business, the people who move things and making move things and make things were making, um were just inconsistent with the um nationalist, English nationalist agenda that was part of selling Brexit, buccaneering Britain, et cetera, et cetera. And you're still seeing it now. Kemi Badnock, the business secretary, she gave a speech today, uh, this week, to the global uh, the Department for Trade's Global Investor Summit, saying that Brexit had had no impact on trade. I don't really know a serious economist who agrees with that, right? But she's, and then Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, said something very similar in his conference speech. Mm. So if you're an investor, you know, who, which audience are these politicians playing to? Kemi Badnock makes that speech. She gets headlines in the in the um, Sun and the Express about doommongers being um, proved wrong and, and Brexit made no impact on trade. But if you're an investor, the people I talk to, you know, the diplomats and the officials and the investors I talk to, they're not convinced by that. They look at that and they go, wow, what has happened to the politics of the once sensible, uh, uh, reliable, dependable Britain that the Prime Minister and the Business Secretary are there saying there's nothing to see here. Mm. You know, that is a really challenging question. And, you know, mechanically, big business could see that it was on a hiding to nothing. So it, and, and it got burned in the Scottish referendum. If if we were split 52-48 down the middle on Brexit, that means that statistically half your customers, unless you're in a particular space, half your customers, half your employees are split 50-50 over Brexit. And so coming out on one side or the other is bound to alienate one half or the other. 
So, you know, what does a PR man say? It says, sit on your hands, don't say anything. And so that is essentially what happened. They just felt it was an argument they couldn't win. And, you know, fuck business, said the prime minister. Well, you know, that, you know, that that said it all in a way. And, and of course, that led to the, um, you know, the, the, the incredible um, sort of dementing of British policymaking, where businesses and officials found themselves literally being brushed away if they came up with kind of fact-based, you know, quest with fact-based approaches to what Brexit was going to do. I mean, it is a remarkable thing that the UK, the British Prime Minister, who's responsible for buccaneering Britain for the value of doing trade deals with the rest of the world that reduce trade barriers with, you know, Asia and Australia, etc., then did a reverse trade deal with a market that takes half our trade. I mean, you think about that for more than about five seconds and you and, you know, it's so fundamentally incoherent mm. that you would do that. And yet, you know, Boris Johnson on the night that the Brexit deal was done came out and said, if anything, it's going to allow us to do more trade with Europe, not less. Well, no, you know, that, again, that might get you through a press conference. It might make a good headline in The Sun or The Daily Express, but no serious economist that I know or investor that I know thinks that to be the case knows that to be the case you know that's the bind that's the bind that we find ourselves in i think and it's not gone away actually i mean sunak to his credit has completely stabilized relationship with the european union but it's a good relationship with ursula von der Leyen. to his great credit he faced down the right of his party and did the deal on northern ireland but fundamentally they're still stuck saying there's nothing to see here and they're still not really going to come up to fundamental solutions to the questions that investors will raise about our relationship and managing our relationship with the eu and until that process happens until that process begins i suspect the uk is going to find it difficult to reverse the uh, 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 trend in fdi flows which is where the money because the money's not coming from the markets at the moment <laughs> you know the cost of servicing borrowing the fiscal headroom the obr identifies there's not going to be a massive government-led investment boom it's going to have to be about attracting international investment and we need to think really hard about what the offer is because yeah. um, right now the investors i talk to aren't in the slightest bit convinced and the numbers would suggest that they're not convinced okay peter well on that slightly pessimistic note we're coming up to one o'clock and uh, to the end of the event thank you ever so much for uh, your lecture today and for your answers to the to the questions that um colleagues have put in in the chat thank you very much peter i mean i suppose it remains to be seen where we are in 15 years rather than perhaps five it arguably took us 15 years to join the european union uh, two applications rejected and vetoed before we finally did join so perhaps um the process of our engagement with europe will take that length of time and longer to 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 resolve but for now um thank you very much you've out, you've outlined for us really clearly what's at stake and what's at stake in in whatever debate takes place on these questions at the next election um uh, next year so peter foster thank you very much indeed i re recommend everybody do go and get the book um uh, <laughs> uh, very well reviewed very well received and uh available in all good booksellers what went wrong with brexit and what we can do about it but thanks to peter thank you all for joining us uh, and today and do stay in touch with the ipr and our event series as we go forward in the coming year on these challenges for britain so stay in touch thanks very much indeed <laughs>